Blog Talk Radio. Welcome all true seekers from across the globe. This is Reverend Karen L. Heasley from the Spiritual Path Church of Newcastle, Pennsylvania in the United States. Our true seeker show covers a variety of subjects from angels to afterlife communication to parapsychology to spiritualism to near-death experiences, meditation, and a number of other true seeking topics. We are happy you have chosen to join us for this episode and hope you find it informative and enjoyable. After our chat tonight with Mark Shaw, we will be taking calls. Here's our number to call in on. Now everybody get a piece of paper and a pencil. 657-383-0416. I'm going to repeat that again. 657-383-0416. And we are lucky tonight that our chat room is working, so people can come into the chat room. As I said, tonight's guest is Mark Shaw. Mark is a former legal analyst for USA Today and CNN. He is a California attorney and investigative reporter who has dedicated the past 10 years to probing the truth about the JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald assassinations. Through his three books... Melvin Belli, King of the Courtroom, and The Poison Monarch, How the Betrayal of Joseph P. Kennedy Caused the Assassination of JFK. The reporter who knew too much investigates the suspicious death of Dorothy Kilgallen. I was compelled to tell Dorothy's story since I kept hearing her shout to me from the grave, investigate, investigate, investigate. Dorothy guided me my path leading me to evidence including official government documents, her own personal papers, and most important, videotaped interviews with those whom she confided in regarding her 18-month exhaustive JFK investigation. Without Dorothy's help, this book would not have been possible. Hi, Mark. Well, good afternoon. I am happy you could join us tonight. I I read the book and I found it just completely fascinating. Just, oh, thank you so uh, much. I appreciate that. Yes. So, I I guess I want to ask you, did, is that really true about um um she tells you from the grave investigate investigate investigate? Well, you know, Karen, it's it's very interesting. There'll be people who will say this is all a bunch of baloney, but it's not. Uh, I don't believe there's any coincidences or, or luck in life. I think there's some sort of spirit that guides everything and guides our life. And uh, the best example of Dorothy, uh, for whatever reason, choosing me to tell her story, uh, even though she's uh, she's been dead for 50, let's say, 1965, so 53 years, um, is the fact that I never intended to write the book. Uh, you mentioned two previous books I had written. 
But during writing the book about Melvin Belli, now some of your older listeners may uh, remember him as a uh, bombastic San Francisco uh, lawyer uh, who handled some of the most um, prestigious clients of the 20th century, uh, the Rolling Stones, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the... uh, uh, Tammy Faye Baker, he had Muhammad Ali, he had all of all of these famous uh, uh, clients, and Mickey Cohen, who, who was a gangster, yeah. and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a little bit. But right. um, Belli was was known as a as the king of torts. He was the uh, you know the most successful personal injury lawyer of the 20th century. Huge million dollar verdicts and all of that. And I knew Mr. Belli. In the mid-1980s, when I practiced law in San Francisco, I had an office in this building. We became friends. I got to know him very well. And when he died in 1996, uh, I decided to write a biography of him. And so uh, I researched it very well, and I knew some of the people who'd worked with him as well. And um, it was interesting because um, I then wrote about his, uh, his most famous client, who was people recognized, Jack Ruby. And Jack Ruby, of course, shot Lee Harvey Oswald, who allegedly mm-hmm. shot the president. So that intrigued me. And uh, so I wrote that book, and I tried to trace back uh, Belli's involvement with the mafia and all of this kind of thing. And then that led me to write the next book you mentioned, The Poison Patriarch, which talked about Joe Kennedy's double cross of the mafia and how that influenced um, the JFK assassination. So I was going to quit. But um, there was something in the back of my mind that kept gnawing at me, and I almost could hear a voice at the time saying, you know, don't stop here. And so uh, I went ahead and I interviewed uh, one of Belli's friends in San Diego, a doctor, and um, while doing so, he told me about, uh, you know, uh, Belli, and then he said, you know, he knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And uh, I said, really, he was on, and, and most people remember Dorothy Kilgallen from the famous What's My Line television show of the 50s and 60s. It was a game yeah. show. She was mm-hmm. one of the main panelists and all of that. And he said, you know, uh, I said, did, did Belle, I know her from What's My Line? He said, no, Mark, you don't know anything about her. She was, yes, a star on What's My Line, but she had a syndicated newspaper column uh, that was... Uh, uh, printed in 200 newspapers across the country. She had a radio show with her husband that was listened to by a million people. Uh, What's My Line was watched by 20 million people every Sunday night, and she was this investigative reporter like no other. She had rep- she had uh, covered the Dr. Sam Shepard case, which people will remember led to the fugitive television show and all of that. So he's telling me all this, and he said, you know, he knew Dorothy Kilgallen real well. And I said, well, again, how? And he said, well, uh, right after she died, it was curious. He said, they've killed Dorothy. Now they'll go after Jack Ruby. They've killed Dorothy. Now they'll go after Jack Ruby. Well, I could not get that thought out of my mind about Dorothy Kilgallen, and I felt this urging, almost like a tap on my back, to look into this. And so that's what led me to this book. And I think that's the first time I realized that maybe there was you know, uh, something special happening where I was being urged by uh, by Dorothy to uh, move forward on this because here's what I found. That in 1965, she was about to uh, publish a book about the JFK assassination. She worked on that for 18 months. She's the only reporter to have interviewed Jack Ruby at trial. She exposed his Warren Commission testimony before it was to be uh, published. Uh, she was hard on the on, on, on uh, J. Edgar Hoover and his Oswald alone theory. She had this gangster in New Orleans named Carlos Marcello, who she thought masterminded the JFK assassination. 
she was putting in that all in the book for, for uh, in a book for Random House. And then on November uh, 8, 1965, before she could publish that book, she was found in a bedroom she never slept in in her townhouse in Manhattan, a bed she never slept in, wearing her eyelashes, false hairpiece, and makeup she never wore to bed. And despite that, when the uh, medical examiner and the police came, they decided right away uh, that it was a drug overdose, and that was the official version. She died of a drug overdose combined with alcohol. Well, as I was getting that information, I could almost hear uh, Dorothy's voice, as you said, investigate, investigate, investigate. And that's what launched my my almost uh, first almost, I guess, a year's worth of research into her life and times and into her death. Well, I have to tell you, um, I started watching What's My Line because when I was younger, I watched it every, every Sunday uh-huh. night. And so sure. this is true, what I'm going to tell you. So I kept watching it and watching it, and I'm looking at her, and all of a sudden, it's like I was just drawn. And then I I put um, her name in. You know, you can go Google anything today. So I put right, her name exactly. in, yeah. and when I did that, you came up. You oh, came yeah. up, and I thought, oh, my God. You know, so I thought, you're right, nothing is a coincidence. And I no. thought of Dorothy as the most brilliant person, you know, when I watched uh-huh. her on What's My Line. Much integrity, much brilliance, and she would go after the truth no matter what. I mean, yeah. see, that's how she played the game. You know what I'm saying? That That's how she came mm-hmm. across to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you used the word that's most important here. I don't know how many... People, you know, the book's become a bestseller. You, you probably know that we, uh, two producers in L.A., that uh, very significant credits have optioned the book for a motion picture television uh, series. And, and that's because of, of one word there, integrity. How many people, I've gotten seven, 800 emails from people around the world who've read the book. That's the one word that they use the most. Uh, she was a woman of integrity on What's My Line. She was a woman of integrity as a reporter. How many of them have said, boy, I wish we had a reporter like Dorothy Kilgallen uh, today? And, and um, you know, you remember that from What's My Line. That's how she mm-hmm. acted on that show. But that's, that's how she gained the respect of not only the readers who read her columns and all of that. Uh, my favorite photo, though, of her is, and people should know, they can. the book is filled with primary sources who knew Dorothy mm-hmm. and all these interviews we can talk about and everything. But all of that is up on the Dorothy org, and you can go up there the dorothykilgallenstory.org and you'll see my favorite picture and it's a photo of her at the at the uh, Dr. Sam Shepard uh, trial the, the oh, fugitive yes. that became the fugitive and all the reporters are gathered around Dorothy and you can see the admiration and the respect that they have for her and um, you know when I, when I learned about all that that's why I really wanted to investigate her death to make sure that they had gotten the verdict right that she had died of an accidental overdose of drugs and, and alcohol. And, of course, in the book, I, I proved that that was not the case, that Dorothy was silenced because she was too close to the truth about the JFK assassination. Hmm. And also I've read in a book about her father, who also was a newspaper reporter, correct? That's what I, I read. Yeah. And he yeah. actually and, interviewed uh, Al Capone and uh, Thomas Edison? That's right. Um, 
you know, uh, this is quite an inspirational story. Uh, it is. Dorothy uh, was was a college dropout. Uh, she mm-hmm. she never finished college. Uh, she begged her father, who was a famous reporter at the time, well-respected as well, for the New York Journal American, which was a huge news- newspaper at the time, to, to let her have an internship there. And so he got her a two-week trial, and it, it ended up being a career for her. Um, but, you know, she back, unfortunately, we still have this going on today, this gender craziness, but back then it was even worse. I mean, women were not supposed to be in the back seat of the car. They were supposed to be in the car behind. And yet Dorothy overcame all of those gender issues. She broke the glass ceiling before we even knew about what Mm -hmm. that meant. I mean, she raised three children. She had all these different careers and all of that. And so she's really a woman to be admired. And I've had a lot of young journalists who have read the book say, you know, I think I'm going to become a journalist just because of what they read about Dorothy. And, of course, that just makes me feel wonderful because I've basically become her voice. You know, nobody would speak up for her back in 65. Nobody wanted to defend her reputation. No one, and nobody wanted to do that. And when I when I figured out that Dorothy had selected me, picked me, to tell her story, um, I decided I was going to do that, and I was going to get the justice for her that she she deserves. I'm sure. I'm sure you. Yeah, I know you have. It's it's a wonderful. Um, so why don't we just start with the story, how you got started, and where it led you, and we can start talking mm-hmm. about certain things. What you want to just because I read the book, but some people haven't. So maybe you can pick out some things that are are pretty stunning in the book. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, Well, this is my what twenty fifth or twenty sixth book, so I'm used to this. But every book is a journey. Every book is a journey, and what happens many times, and I think this would interest your uh, your readers. You were you were talking about you know you're you're a truth seeking person, and that's what that's what Dorothy was. Uh, so that's what I tried to do. But I will tell you, there were times when I almost gave up because I didn't know if I would get enough information about this because the case is so old, you know, 50-some years. But let me give you a few examples of when I knew that Dorothy was uh, was inspiring me and guiding me from the grave, you know, and, okay. and I think people would be interested in this. Yeah. You know, I found out about her, what's my line life? I found out about her, you know, uh, uh, investigating the Jack Ruby trial. Uh, but I like to use what I call primary sources in my books. I don't like to speculate. And so, you know, at one point I kind of got stuck a bit in terms of what can I show uh, that happened with regard to Dorothy actually being at the Jack Ruby trial and being on the job there and all of that. And um, it was interesting because I'd become a bit frustrated with finding that and uh, also with finding anybody who really knew Dorothy. Uh, because nobody spoke up for her in 65. And and that was a really tough situation for me because I just couldn't get enough information. So one day, for whatever reason, I just felt compelled. I felt this urging, go to Google and take a look around and and throw something in about Dorothy. And and so I I had done that before, but I had never thrown in exactly the Dorothy Kilgallen story. When I threw in those words, I found a 2007 article written by uh, a a writer in the Midwest and published by this writer's father in Midwest Today magazine. And that particular magazine is a good one, and if people want to look at it, it focuses on celebrities born in the Midwest. Dorothy was actually born in Chicago before she and her family moved to New York City and she got into the newspaper business there. So 
I'm reading this article, and it's very well done. It's called Who Killed Dorothy Kilgallen? And I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm just amazed because here I see quotes from three uh, from uh, Dorothy Kilgallen's two hairdressers that she had, who I later found out were basically her closest friends, from uh, an interview with a woman who had uh, seen her the last night of her life after the, her final What's My Line show when she went to the Regency Hotel later, and also Joe Tonahill who was the co-counsel with Melvin Belli for Jack Ruby. And I'm reading this, and I think, oh, my gosh, that's just great. I mean, this is wonderful material. So right away I picked up the phone and I called this publisher, and he said, Mark, it's good to hear from you. He said, I'm researching a story on Dorothy Kilgallen. He said, well, I saw you had all those interviews. I'd love to talk to those people. He said, Mark, I have bad news. They're all dead. I thought, oh, no, I missed them. <laughs> he said, but I have good news. There's a woman down in Los Angeles, you live in San Francisco, there's a woman down in Los Angeles who uh, she and her colleague were obsessed with Kilgallen's death and they videotaped the interviews. And he said, Mr. Shaw, I can put you in touch with that woman. And my heart was beating so fast because I thought, boy, this this is what I needed, this is what Dorothy wants me to do. I -hmm. called this woman in L.A. and talked to her and it took me, Karen, six months to get her to trust me with the videotapes. A couple times I thought she wasn't going to do it, and then in the mail I'd given her my address and FedEx number and all that. I'd get these videotapes from her. Videotapes from her. First they were just partial, and then I'd get another one, and then get another one. Then I wouldn't hear from her for a month. For a month, and finally I got them all. And again, they're up on the DorothyKilgallenStory.org. And the reason they were so important is because Mark Sinclair who was her main hairdresser, not only was her best friend and talked about Dorothy and her JFK assassination investigation and everything, but he also was the the person, the second person, actually in the townhouse to find her body. And he uh, provides a a detailed explanation of how that happened. The second hairdresser, um, um, Charles Simpson, adds to that that uh, what happened on that day she died and then all these this information about Dorothy um he told her she told him right before she died if the wrong people know knew what I know about the JFK assassination it would cost me my life so that was such you know important information the last uh, the woman the woman who was the final uh, person, one of the final people, to see her right before the last What's My Line show, a few hours before her body was found, talks about her meeting a mystery man uh, in the darkness of the Regency Hotel bar. And then Joe Tonahill, his interview was just um, priceless because talked about her being at the, uh, J- at the uh, Jack Ruby trial, her interviews of Jack Ruby and all of that. And I remember actually walking outside where I live and just screaming. Because this is what I knew I had to find to be able to write the story I wanted to write about Dorothy. And there is no question in my mind that she led me there as she has led me continuing along. I'm writing a a follow-up book called Denial of Justice. It will be out November the 22nd. She led me to new information about her death and her JFK assassination in in the last few months. So Dorothy has been right there with me all the way along. Well, she knows you're the man that's going to do it. That's why. Well, I don't know why she chose me. I, I You know, I've, I've got a good track record with my books, and I, I'm a, a person that, you know, I try to defend people when I don't believe they've been treated right. I did that with my first book with Mike Tyson. I've done it with 
other uh, biographical subjects that I've chosen. Uh, maybe she likes my books. I don't know, but um, I've been overwhelmed with support, a lot of reader tips. Um, you know, a couple. One woman told me she goes to Dorothy's grave now in in New in New York uh, in New York and p- puts flowers there. People have called her a patriot. Her reputation, uh, which was tarnished by them calling her an alcoholic and a drug addict, has been restored in some ways. And then, of course, I'm continuing to fight with the New York District Attorney's Office to uh, investigate her death because there was no investigation in 1965. And so Dorothy just keeps, uh, you know, keeps me going. And I will tell you, people, again, will think I may be crazy, but every word I'm saying to you, I feel like this comes from Dorothy, that this is the kind of thing she would want to, want me to talk about uh, so that people can know her story. Well, I think it, that you're doing a, a brave thing. You're doing a brave thing, and you're coming out of the box and helping her. But, you know, who 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 better than you? I mean, I certainly don't think you're crazy. And she defended <laughs> everybody. You. I mean, she did. She defended people like um, this the Shepherd trial. Remember, she did. She wasn't real happy with the verdict on that trial. That's right. Right. That's with right. his and that's right. She, she was very tenacious about going after the truth for people. Yeah, she. Uh, you know, she uh, she had the respect of her peers, the reporters, and so. That was important, but she had the the respect of people so that she had the best sources. Uh, sure, she was a thorn in the side of J. Edgar Hoover. She was a thorn in the side of this Marcello that she suspected of being involved in the JFK assassination. Uh, Frank Sinatra didn't like her. They had a, a real uh, war of words uh, when she wrote some damaging articles about Sinatra. She had uh, problems with her husband. It was a it was a, a marriage, uh, unfortunately, that became estranged because of his running around on her. And then, you know, she had a couple affairs, so she she had warts. There's no question about it, but that that happened. And then there was this mystery man uh, who was the last person to meet her uh, the the night before she died or the day before she died there. And um, I've been able to locate him. He's still living in Ohio. Uh, he's still alive, Ron Pataki, and I uh, named him in the book. And uh, we're going to try to get, uh, uh, you know, justice for Dorothy by, uh, you know, showing the New York District Attorney's Office that uh, Pataki uh, incriminated himself uh, through mm-hmm. his writings, two poems that those he wrote poems. that you read he in the book, two poems, and a lot right? of consistent statements. Mm. Yeah, the two poems. Yeah, the, the, the two poems. Those yeah. two poems that are in your the book, I, I found that fascinating too. I couldn't believe that. Well, again, you know, that, that, was, that was Dorothy working again, because I had sure. interviewed, uh, Pataki, Pataki had been interviewed a couple times uh, by another author and, and the guy in, uh, in the Midwest, but uh, I interviewed him then, and um, I remember, you know, when we were talking uh, that he was very evasive and inconsistent statements, conflicting statements and all of that, but I finally just, because I knew about the poems, I asked him about them, he said, oh, they didn't have anything to do with Dorothy. Uh, they were humorous in nature, and I said, wait a minute, Ron, um, I have to say something to you. Uh, as you know, uh, you know, I've been able to figure out what happened with Dorothy, that we believe that her, uh, either at the Regency Hotel bar or when she arrived home, that these barbiturates were spiked into uh, her favorite drink, which was a vodka and tonic, and that there wasn't one a barbiturate in her system, as the medical examiner, examiner first uh, said. There wasn't two in there, as uh, as it showed in actually in the autopsy report. There were three in there, 
and it's no question that um, they were they were spiked into her drink that she was she was silent she was murdered, and he said, well, I don't know anything about that, and I said, well, you know, if you read the the lyrics of your of your two poems, you have described exactly how she was killed, and as any any I'm a former de- criminal defense lawyer, so any good uh, detective will say, you always wanted to find a suspect who the only way he could know, he or she could know of what happened is that they uh, have this kind of information that nobody else knows. And, you know, he, he kind of stumbled around that and said, well, you know, it's just humorous and everything else like that. And in the new book, Denial of Justice, I even have more uh, incriminating evidence because he has that photograph of the, in there of the bartender uh, pouring the drinks and stuff like that. But um, Ron Pataki was obviously complicit in her death but Dorothy led me to be able to find those kinds of things so that I could prove that, first of all, uh, she had been silenced because she was a reporter who knew too much, which, of course, is the name of the book. But also, um, you know, go ahead and show exactly how she died and, uh, and, and who, was, uh, who, who was responsible. And she also sent to him the uh, testimony of uh, Roby before it came out, right, with the Warren Commission. Didn't she send something to him about that? Well, uh, that's an, that's an interesting. Kind of, yeah. It, you're you're close. Um, okay. He de- he denied ever seeing anything that she wrote. Dorothy never shared her JFK okay. assassination file with anybody, uh, but 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 him. Uh, but he denied that initially that he'd ever seen anything. And then the more we talked, people were reading the book, his conflicting statements that yes, mm-hmm. uh, he did help her one time with uh, a newspaper article she was writing. You know, he's he's a, he's really a pathological liar. He really doesn't know what the truth is. And as I say in the new book, Denial of Justice, um, there's more incriminating evidence about Ron, his drinking problems. And there's no question in my mind that either Marcello or Hoover or someone else who wanted to get rid of Dorothy used Pataki as their operative and that he was the one uh, who was responsible for the uh, barbiturates getting into her system. So... Um, you know, he's aware. I just uh, have been emailing uh, emailing with him up to a couple months ago, and I mm-hmm. uh, haven't heard from him uh, since, but he knows that uh, I have him in my sights, and I'm continuing to feed information to New York District Attorney's Office about him. He's quite a character from what I read in the book. <clears throat> he, uh, he had a violent well, side to him, yeah. too. Yeah, he, he has a, has a real dark side to him, and I found a couple of more arrests that were in that were in the first book, showing his uh, violent tendencies and his um, his just uh, you know Dorothy was had trusted him. Dorothy cared about him she a did. great deal, and she trusted yes. him, as you read Karen, with uh, really important details about the JFK assassination, and. Um, you know, then he, he, he basically just, uh, you know, she thought that he was leaking that information out to the wrong people. And on the, on the last night of her, of her life, uh, the one hairdresser believes, and so do I, that he was the mystery man who met with her. She confronted him over the potential of leaking uh, her, her investigation material and uh, that then he uh, was responsible for what happened to her later uh, because people uh, understand that she she was we know she was alive about two o'clock in the morning on November eighth, nineteen sixty five, 
Her body was then found uh, at 9 o'clock the next morning, although that was uh, shrouded in mystery by the medical examiner who said the body was found at 3 o'clock. The butler uh, was the one who actually found the body first, as we will show in the new book, and the hairdresser found the body uh, second. Uh, But uh, that was all shrouded in mystery, again, because the medical examiner uh, just decided it was an accidental death uh, there was no investigation, and the police went along with that. And we we found uh, through the evidence in the book that the medical examiner's office was corrupt. It was mafia-controlled. And so the whole thing was designed to eliminate Dorothy Kilgallen and taint her reputation so nobody would pay any attention to what I believe, and most people who've read the book believe, is the most compelling JFK assassination in history. And I will tell you that in the new book, I was able, through again Dorothy leading to me to a lawyer down in Fresno, come up with some shocking new information about the JFK assassination that has never been published. And I, I know that Dorothy led me in that direction so that I could find that material. She should be the co-author of the book, even though I would just say she's the author of this book. I'm just her, her sidekick. You're just like the ghostwriter for her. Yeah, well, you, you could say that. I guess you could say that, couldn't you? I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, how about that? The uh, ultimate ghostwriter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and I want to talk a little bit, since you talked about the uh, medical examiner's office. Boy, what a screw-up they did, don't you think? And then the one gentleman, I can't remember his name right now, it's in the book, that he had to actually leave the office because he wanted to do things the right way, and then they wanted him to sign something. He wouldn't sign it, so then he left, right? I can't... Okay, so I'm, I want to answer that in two ways. First of all, another Dorothy story. Okay, The autopsy, Dorothy's autopsy had never been published before. I tried to get it from the New York Medical Examiner's Office, and you can't get it unless you're a family member, so I had a dead end. So my wife is a librarian uh, at uh, Santa Clara University, and she and I have gone to library conferences and everything. And so my best ideas come in the middle of the night. All of my books, they're at markshawbooks.com. All the titles have come in the middle of the night when 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 the spirit of some sort wakes me up. I write them down on note cards and all of that. So one... One early morning, about 3 o'clock, that's when it happens, I wake up and I think to myself, Hean, I can't get Hean's name out of my mind. Well, who's Hean? Well, she's one of my wife's best friends. She's a librarian at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wait a minute, is there a possibility that Hean could check to see if there might be um, a copy of the autopsy there or perhaps the National Archives? And that just came to me because I think Dorothy told me that's what I needed to do. So I had Lou, my wife, uh, winning Lou. She's Taiwanese. She got a hold of her friend, Ian, who's Chinese, and, okay. and we asked her to look into it. So she, she had a good time with it because she said she kind of went undercover and went over to the National Archives, and there was the autopsy report. So she sent it to me. I then uh, looked at it very carefully, and right away I knew that medical examiner's uh, report that was issued a day or two after Dorothy's death was bogus. It said that she had died of an overdose of secondol, which most people know is just simple uh, sleeping pills, and alcohol, circumstances undetermined, which was a strange addition to the official cause of death. Well, I looked down the uh, autopsy report, which is in the reporter who knew too much and will be in the new book, Denial of Justice, 
And you can read yourself. It says, there's a place where it says secanol, and right below it is tulanol. Well, for people that don't know, secanol is the mild sedative. The next one is tulanol. So right away, I looked around to see if that was ever mentioned anywhere, and obviously I knew that the medical examiner had hidden that material because it didn't fit with the conclusion he wanted, which was accidental death. And so that, you know, that is that is something that I was able to prove through the forensics and everything else like that. So he covered it up. Then I find out that there's a uh, assistant to a medical examiner in the office there, a toxicologist, and in 1968, this one toxicologist had kept samples of uh, material from Dorothy's um, bloodstream, uh, samples that they had, uh, thinking that maybe technology down the line would help there be a better analysis of all that. And they looked at it, and they not only found uh, secondol and tulanol, but they found uh, nembutol, which is the third step up if you go in danger, and all three barbiturates were found in her stomach. So, right away, they decided that Dorothy had been murdered. But they didn't come forward, so that was the second cover-up that there was. And then, on top of that, speaking to what you said, I was able to actually find the son of the toxicologist who helped find the three barbiturates. And he told me these very scary stories, as you read, Karen, I and did. the mother, too. First, the mother said that, it, that the, uh, her husband had said Dorothy was bumped off, which is the, uh, the mafia way of, of saying somebody was killed, but also that it was a scary time because the toxicologists there were being forced to sign reports with conclusions in there that were not true, and that uh, this one toxicologist had to, had to leave the office under pressure. Um, all of that happened, and so... Dorothy never had a chance in, in that arena. They just closed it up. They, they, they gave out the wrong initial uh, cause her, of her death. And then in 68, they, cover, or 68, 68, they covered up uh, another cause of death. And then, you know, uh, it just got away. It never went, it went away. And if I hadn't uh, used Dorothy's direction to find he in, in, in Washington and find that autopsy report, it would have been buried forever. But Dorothy helped me find that, and now it's been, it's been, uh, you know, it's come to light, and people can look in there and they can make up their own mind as to the official cause of death. That's fascinating, Mark. Um, I just thought of a story I want to ask you about. This is going off a little bit, but Dorothy was in that science club, and Dorothy knew a lot of people. I mean, she knew Broadway. She, I mean, she knew she actually knew some of the mobsters and gangsters, right? So uh-huh. she, yeah. she, and she had this science club, and I found it very interesting that she invited um, right. the Daunt, what, right. Costello, if I'm not mistaken, yes. uh-huh. to the science club to be her guest. Yeah, yeah. I found that. Yeah, and I want to, I want to compliment you because I really appreciate your having really read the book and and recalling so much of this, Karen. Sometimes that doesn't happen with interviews, so I very much appreciate your, your having done that. Yes, um, I love the you book. know, uh, back in those days, in the in the fifties and sixties, some of those gangsters were really looked upon as celebrities. They were, despite the fact that they were out there killing people and and uh, dealing drugs and doing whatever they were doing. There was kind of a flash to them, you know, the Mickey Cohens and Frank Costello and Marcello and Travacante and Sam Giancana and all right. these guys. They were kind mm-hmm. of looked as glamorous. 
And Dorothy, somehow or another, had stuck up a friendship with Frank Costello, who was one of the most notorious uh, New York dons. Yes, he was. But I think that happened because she she used these people as sources for her story, for her story. So the story you tell is interesting because P.J. Clark's, which is a a well-known watering hole in Mm -hmm. New York City, Mm -hmm. still there today. I've been there. I've been right where Dorothy where Dorothy sat on the last day of her last night of her life. They had a little science club every Tuesday, and uh, there were celebrities who came with Dorothy, and one of them was Frank uh, Frank Costello. And uh, later on, uh, the, the hairdresser and in the interviews they can people can see at the DorothyKilgallenStory dot org. They will they will hear uh, Mark Sinclair say that actually they went down to Little Italy and. And uh, Costello gave her a, a diamond, uh, a diamond a ring that they turned into yeah, a necklace a and all of mm-hmm. that. But most interesting about that is that um, the FBI and, and the other authorities were always watching Dorothy. Uh, she was outspoken about everything going on even before the JFK assassination. And so they were monitoring her. And in the book, you'll see FBI files that show how they were uh, watching every move she had. Well, one of the... FBI files talks about the fact that there was an informant inserted into that science club as a friend of Dorothy's or knew somebody and then reported on what she had done during that science club meeting. And this was just the start of surveillance, I believe, on Dorothy, which led right up to the JFK assassination. So, yeah, Dorothy knew everybody. I've I've interviewed for the new book, uh, the um, uh, the son of the owner uh, at uh, P.J. Clark's, one of the waitresses there. I've been able to interview uh, one of the last contestants, another last contestant on the, on the What's My Line show, and they all talk about Dorothy knowing everybody. I mean, the New York Post called her the most powerful voice in America. Ernest Hemingway said she was the greatest woman writer yeah. in the world then. She, she did, yeah. She had all of this glamour to it and this reputation, and so everybody... Uh, talk to Dorothy, because getting in that column, Karen, as you remember, that was a real plus. If you uh, could get yes. your name mentioned in the Voice of Broadway column, uh, that that could, uh, if it was mentioned the right way, it could help your career. If Dorothy went after you, it could end your career. That's how powerful she was. Exactly. And, and all getting back to Costello, they said he, he was maybe a silent op- owner in a Copacabana, and they all sat at this one table where... Um, yeah. Uh, who was the singer? Was it Rosemary Clooney that night? There was Phyllis um, McGuire. I can't remember exactly. I right. thought it was Rosemary right. Clooney they yes. all went to see. Oh, yeah. You know, you, it, it's interesting if you kind of try to visualize what that must have been like. I know. Uh, being, being Dorothy Kilgallen at the time. You know, she never had to pick up a check, whether it was the Copacabana uh, whether it was the Stork Club, the, the famous uh, watering holes then, she never had to pick up a check. There was always a table for her. Uh, all the glamorous people, you know, came to that table. She was very good friends with Marilyn Monroe. I, in the new book, I will talk about a, a special type of friendship that she had with Marilyn. Uh, you know, so you, if you think you were Dorothy Kilgallen in limousine to go every place, uh, you know, everybody wanting to know you, everybody wanting to get you know the name in the in the column. Um, but she she had she had just a wonderful time, and and you know again that's that's what bothered me so much is that uh, right in the prime of her life, I, I'm sure your listeners have figured out that she was born in 1913 and she died in 1965. She was 52 years old, is all. Yeah, that is the prime. And she had a whole life ahead of her. 
uh, as this um, most powerful voice in America. She had done things nobody else had ever done, a trip around the world she took that was famous. Yeah, she, trip around the you world. You know, she interviewed everybody. People will remember, many of your listeners, and you probably do, the famous person-to-person television show, Edward R. Murrow. Edward R. Murrow, yes. Mm-hmm. He used to come on there sitting in a chair, smoking a cigarette, you know, and all of that. Well, there's the interview with Edward R. Murrow on the Dorothy Kilgallen story.org, and, and people can watch her being interviewed along with her husband, Richard, and two of the children there. And she talks about the love of her life is the newspaper business and all of that. And, and you know, she was just uh, at the top of, of, of her profession and uh, so revered by so many people. This is what bothered me so much as I, as I wrote the book, Karen, and it still does today, that nobody stood up for her. She they had didn't. no I indi- agree. there was no indication there was no indication she had a drug habit, no indication she was an alcoholic. And yet but, not her family, not her friends, not the what's my line colleagues, none of her ger- journalism uh, guys uh stood up for her. And, and and it always bothered me. I've been able to find and, and people will read about this in the new book, Denial of Justice in November, I've been able to find her butler's daughter in New York City. And I interviewed her along with my wife for a couple sessions there, uh, three or four hours. And I began to understand why nobody came forward. They were all scared. And the reason they were scared is because they all knew that she was investigating the JFK assassination. I'm going to break this case wide open. Um, I'm afraid for my life and my family. She bought a gun. She was changing her will. They all knew about everything. Well, they knew who had killed her somebody associated with the JFK assassination. And if those people could get to Dorothy Kilgallen, then they could get to anyone who would come forward and try to speak up. They were scared then, and I will tell you, in the two interviews with the uh, hairdressers, they were interviewed in the late 1990s, and they were still scared to come forward uh, after, uh, after almost 50 years. And I've had people that I've, I've contacted and I've talked to, and they won't talk to me because they're still scared. I had one woman, a good friend of Dorothy's uh, daughter, talk to me very well on the phone, and then all at once she wouldn't talk to me anymore. This is 50-some years later. Wow. 50-some years later, they're still scared that somebody might cause them harm if they talk about Dorothy Kilgallen. No, we have to tell our our listeners uh, because we're talking back and forth, and you know, I love to talk about this. But she did have a file that she kept on all the information that she got for the JFK right. assassination, and then that disappeared. Now, would you say that somebody knew where that file was? I mean, you know what I'm saying, uh, Mark? Yeah, Dorothy thought she was invincible. She was such a big deal, the big star, you know, they called her the, you know, the star of Broadway. I mean, she was it. And so she thought she was invincible. Nobody could, um, nobody could touch her. Um, and that caused her problems because she was a blabbermouth. Too many people about what she was doing with the JFK assassination, especially as you get closer to, um, to November of 65. First of all, Carlos Marcello, who she believed was involved in the JFK assassination, and she was proving Ruby knew Oswald and all of that, he was had been deported by Bobby Kennedy and, and then got back in the country. He's about to be deported again. He faced a conspiracy trial in, uh, in uh, New Orleans. 
his back was against the wall, and he hated Bobby Kennedy. And so uh, I think people will understand in the book how I've shown that he had no alternative. He could have killed Bobby Kennedy, but Jack Kennedy would have come after him with everything the government had. Instead, you kill Jack Kennedy, and then Bobby Kennedy is powerless, and that's exactly what happened. That is the other antagonist is, is J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. From seven days after JFK died, she wrote her first article, The Oswald File Must Not Close. And then she kept writing the articles, shouting that the Oswald of Bone theory made no sense whatsoever. And, uh, and obviously Hoover, and we, we show this through FBI files in the, in, a, in the reporter who knew too much and more about that in Denial of Justice coming out in November, that, uh, you know, he, was, uh, he knew that uh, Dorothy was going to expose him as covering up the truth about the JFK assassination in a new book. So you got these two guys, both of them powerful men, who finally decide that Dorothy's got to be stopped. She had made one trip to New Orleans, she was about to make another one, and she was on the cusp of exposing the truth. But unfortunately, she talked to everybody about it, including her makeup man, you'll see quotes from him, the two hairdressers. Most anybody that would listen, she would talk to about this because this was going to be the story of a lifetime for her. And as she, as she got closer, she just thought she was invincible. And unfortunately, despite warnings from her butler and from, from Mark Sinclair, which we show in, in, the, in both books, uh, she wouldn't listen. And uh, even, even though uh, there was an incident with her son, um, about a week before she died, where there were photographs of him in a newspaper of him uh, running across Central Park by himself. That really scared her, obviously, but it didn't scare her enough to stop her investigation of the JFK assassination. And that's why, as they got closer to uh, the mid, mid-November or first part of November, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen could not write that book for Random House. Well, it was going to be based on the file that you mentioned. Uh, In the new book, there will be a a photograph that's never been seen, and Mm -hmm. she's standing at the Ruby trial, and she's holding papers against her chest. And those were the papers, the notes from the Ruby trial, uh, the notes from sources she'd interviewed. It was a very thick file. We describe what was in there in the books. And and she, she didn't show it to really anybody except Ron Pataki, we know. Other than that, she kept it close to the vest. You know, there wasn't a Kinko's down the street. She couldn't make a copy of it. Yeah. And so uh, she took it with her to What's My Line, didn't show anybody what it was. But we know that she had it on that last night that she died. When her body was found in, a bedroom, in that bedroom she never slept in and all the other things I talked about with the stage death scene, the file had disappeared. Now, through my research here with the, with the new book, I believe I've been able to find a little bit more uh, evidence in terms of what happened to that file. Uh, at first, we thought that her husband, Richard, had had it and had destroyed it through what he said. But I've been able to uncover a couple uh, sources that say that did not happen. And so I think I'll be able to give even a better indication of what may have happened to that file. Because if you find the file, you can find the killer of Dorothy Kilgallen. And she kept that file in the coop, and a lot of people weren't allowed to go up there, right? It was called the coop in her uh, townhouse. Boy, again, I just compliment you on your on your uh, your research for this. Thank you. The Kloop. The Kloop was quite an interesting place. Dorothy lived in, a, I think it was a 20-some uh, room mansion on East 68th Street. The building still mm-hmm. exists today. 
Um, she, um, uh, she did not, by that time, she and her husband were pretty much estranged, even though they were living together. He slept on the fourth floor. She slept on the fifth floor, floor. uh, in this kloop, which was her office. Uh, I even had to look up the, uh, what kloop meant, uh, (laughs) because they used it in the first book, but actually kloop is what is the sound that a cork makes when you open a bottle of champagne. I have no No, idea why she picked that. I have to wait until until she tells me that. Yeah, let but, me know. Uh, that was that was her office. That was her place. She didn't let anybody up there. That's where she worked hard. That's where she worked on the file. And uh, unfortunately, when she died, uh, th- there was no uh, there was no file anywhere to be found. That leads me to believe that that somebody knew where that file was and took it. Yeah, I. I think not only was it uh, important to silence Dorothy, but also to confiscate that file because uh, if it had been found and his, her, the editors at Random House could have, uh, you know, had it copied and, and put, in, put in a book, uh, both Hoover and Marcello and uh, Ron Pataki, all those who I think were, we show are involved in her death, they would all have been exposed. Okay, now I want to ask you about the death certificate. The the person that signed it, he worked in Brooklyn, and she was from Manhattan. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, again, there's just also all these discrepancies that make you believe that there was this plan to just silence Dorothy and then close off any investigation. Dorothy lived in Manhattan. Um, there was a medical examiner's office that wasn't very far away. That, that's who should have been called, but instead... They called uh, the um, Brooklyn Medical Examiner's Office, which was about 10 miles away. Made no sense whatsoever. And, of course, it was the one that was mafia-corrupted, as I've proven in the, in the book, and there'll be more about that in the new book. Uh, so that made no sense uh, whatsoever. Uh, and then, of course, um, if you, it, the death certificate is copied in the book, and you can read, and you'll see that it wasn't signed by Dr. James Luke, who was the medical examiner who, you know, ended up with the autopsy and all of that, and that report uh, that said she died of the alcohol and barbiturate circumstances undetermined. It wasn't signed by him as it should be. It was signed by this DeMayo guy, who, who there was no reason why he would have signed it. And if you read it carefully, it basically says that he's the guy who examined the body, confiscated the body, did all these different things, was just an outright lie. It just mm-hmm. wasn't even close to the truth. But, you know, again, we didn't have any investigative reporters who were friends of hers. I mean, scattered throughout both books are all of these wonderful uh, tributes to Dorothy, how great a reporter she was, and she went after the facts, and she investigated. She did all these things. But unfortunately, all those reporters who wrote those articles did nothing. I mean, wait a minute. You can't possibly look at, at you know, just just decide that a woman who didn't have any alcoholic problems, had no drug problems, you know, there's, there's no investigation of anything. They just took it as at sur- surface value that, that it was true, and they didn't look into it in any way. They didn't uh, try to find out who was in the house when Dorothy died. What about the people she saw at What's My Line during her last show, which people can watch on YouTube? They yeah, didn't They didn't look into anything that way. And if any of them would have just, they could have gotten a death certificate. They would have seen that, that uh, James Luke never signed it. They did absolutely nothing. They let down her friend. They, they let down a woman that they had great respect for who was a true professional 
and then they acted in an unprofessional way. Well, she was really worried for her life because she talked. Uh, she told Sinclair she was going to get a gun, and, and she people were making threats against her. Yeah, unfortunately, I wish, uh, you know, you always hoped that you would have been there when those interviews took place because I would have liked to have seen some follow-up questions uh, because at one point she tells Sinclair that, yes, uh, people are harassing her and leaking her JFK assassination material to the wrong people. Well, uh, they didn't follow up by what was the harassment. Uh, was it phone calls? Was it letters? Was it what? What was it? Was she confronted on the street? We don't know that. All right, and so that's that's a problem. And then the wrong people. We don't know who she meant by the wrong people. At some point, another point, he just said peep. She just said people. So unfortunately, I wasn't there. Those those hairdressers are now have now passed away. Mm-hmm. So there's okay. no way that I can really know that except. You know, the wrong people. I know who Dorothy was pinpointing with regard to the JFK assassination. But as far as the harassment goes, um, you know, there's no way to be able to to detail through primary witnesses exactly what that harassment uh, amounted to. But there's no question that we she was she was scared and, and uh, she was telling her friend, other friends and everything that, you know, she was in danger. And, and obviously she was. Um, but I think people will be most interested, especially in what the butler's daughter, uh, Brenda DeJordan, has to say about the day that Dorothy died because she was around the townhouse during that time, what her father had to say uh, about what he believed was happening to Dorothy, how he'd warned her that she should leave Ruby alone and, and not investigate any further. But nobody was going to talk Dorothy out of going forward with this investigation. No, she she had it in her head that... It wasn't right what was going on with Jack Ruby, and, and you can honestly tell me the truth. I mean, I don't think that he had a really good defense. Well, you know, I've I've always looked into that kind of thing. I started with Mike Tyson. I didn't believe he got a a, um, a fair trial because of his defense lawyer, Jonathan Pollard, the American spy. I wrote a book about him. I didn't think he got a fair shake. And I think it will shine through that not only do not, don't I believe that, um, that Dorothy got a fair shake for sure, but neither did Jack Ruby. Melvin mm-hmm. Belli was corrupted as well. He was a, he was a mafia wannabe. Mickey Cohen, the uh, very dangerous uh, L.A. Um, gangster, was uh, not only his client but a very close friend. Um, you know, Belli, you know, Dorothy had figured out pretty much what had happened, I believe. Because Belli was at the trial, she became close to the defense and, and then got to interview Ruby and everything. She believed the JFK assassination was a mob operation start to finish. Marcello had to get rid of Jack Kennedy because uh, Bobby Kennedy was pursuing him and going to throw him out of the country, so you get rid of Jack, Bobby is uh, powerless. Uh, one of the soldiers, uh, Dorothy believed, that was involved in the JFK assassination was Oswald. Oswald uh, is captured. You bring in Jack Ruby, who is close to Marcello, and um, you know this low-life mafia guy in in um, in New Orleans, in uh, Dallas, and uh, he then uh, ends up uh, shooting Oswald. And in the new book, I will tell you, this is the shocking information I'm talking about. Nobody has ever um, had it's never been published about Jack Ruby and the fact that him saying that he was in the in the Dallas County uh, Jail basement and just happened to be there and kill Oswald. That's a a bunch of baloney, and I will prove that Mm -hmm. in the new book. And then Ruby is a loose end. So what do you do? You bring in Melvin Belli, 
Belli uses this ludicrous uh, psychomotor epilepsy defense. Yeah, uh, yeah, makes no sense, but makes Ruby look crazy. He won't let Ruby, and now Ruby is looked upon as, as uh, you know, deranged. And that buttons up everything. Well, Dorothy had pretty much figured all of that out, I believe. And she intended to go to New Orleans. You read about that trip. Mark Sinclair, the, the uh, hair designer, he talks about it on the DorothyKilgallenStory.org, and it's in the book. They went down there together. They, she had him, uh, they ha- had him uh, fly. They flew on two different planes. When she got there and she did some investigation, she called him. She told him to go back to New York City uh, right away and never tell anybody he was even in New Orleans. So she kept all that, what she found in New Orleans, to herself. That was going to be in her book. And then she had planned a second trip to New Orleans. And those people who were threatened by exposure, uh, Hoover, Marcello, whoever it was, decided she could not make another trip to New Orleans, and she was killed shortly thereafter. Did she see, Did she talk to the uh, district attorney in New Orleans at Garrison? Was she... People have asked me that. You know, there's there's several things people have, have asked, and maybe your listeners want to know. Was the death of Marilyn Monroe connected to Dorothy's? Well, I can't find it, even though they were very close friends, and you'll read what Dorothy had to say in the book about uh, Marilyn's death. No, I've never been able to find primary source evidence that connects those two deaths. In okay. New Orleans, Jim Garrison was there, of course, um, but she never mentioned him to anyone uh, she talks about, I think you will read uh, something about she's going to meet a source she does not know, but that mm-hmm. she will talk to or something like that. Well, I don't believe that would have been uh, Garrison. Uh, it's very possible that it could have been, but I don't think so. So I'm, I'm very reluctant in my books to speculate, and, and I can't speculate that Jim Garrison, uh, that she was going to see him there. Okay. Um I I found something else that uh, fascinated me <clears throat> about uh, Dorothy's husband and Dorothy's mother. At the funeral, May said to yeah. him, you killed my daughter. I know you did. <laughs> yeah. Well, the book is set up as a true crime murder mystery. I lay out uh, the story with you learn all about Dorothy, and then you find out she's investigating the JFK assassination, and she's dead. And then uh, there's the official report, and then I show that that's a bunch of baloney. And then I look at the suspects who could have killed Dorothy. Well, uh, you know, the the whole thing with Richard. uh, Richard uh, was a Broadway producer, for those that have not read the book, who um, she and Dorothy, uh, he and Dorothy uh, married. Uh, He was a successful Broadway producer at the time, and then he fell on hard times. The productions didn't go well. He opened a couple restaurants that didn't work, and he fell into becoming an alcoholic. Um, He and Dorothy kind of went their separate ways because Richard ended up uh, running around with a lot of different women and all of that. And um, so, you know, they were kind of estranged, although they were still living together because of the children and all of that. Dorothy uh, had an affair with Johnny Ray, uh, the famous singer that people remember, the little white cloud that cried and cry and some other songs. Uh, before Ron Pataki, that she got involved with him. Mark Sinclair said she was very lonely, and so that's what she did. Um, But um, when the funeral happened, and people should know, more than 10,000 people uh, attended, uh, walked by uh, the church where she was uh, viewing, and then there were more than 3,000 people, including many, many celebrities, inside the church when she died. But uh, at the end of that, toward the end of that funeral, there was a picture in the New York Journal-American and uh, Richard is standing with um, May Kilgallen, Dorothy's mother. 
And that's when she apparently uh, pointed a finger at him and said, you killed, you killed my daughter, and I will prove it. Nobody picked up on that. This is in the newspaper. This is in the newspaper. This is in the Journal American. Now, you would think that somebody would have, some reporter would have said, hey, wait a second, there's a couple things here. First of all, uh, murdered? It's supposed to be an accidental death. And second, the mother, maybe she's grieving and everything, but she says the husband killed her daughter. Well, I mean, come on. Nobody picked up on that. Nobody did anything about it. It just went into the wind. And, uh, you know, only, you know, since the book came out early last year and, and all of that, and, and when the new one comes out, I, I, readers are startled by that. And, and I was too. I mean, nobody asked any questions. They just uh, accepted it as true that, that Dorothy died accidentally, and that was it. I found that, yeah, when I, I read that, I found that fascinating as well. And, and I want to get back, you mentioned Johnny Ray. And actually, Dorothy, they had a whirlwind affair her and Johnny Ray. And uh-huh. what caught, I, I found something very interesting that she had, he had to go to court and she went with him and uh, helped yeah. him. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little well, bit about that? You know, please? If you want to see the, the, uh, the uh, respect and the power that Dorothy had, Johnny Ray was a, of course, was a known homosexual and, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he had his hit records and all of that. Well, he and Dorothy met and there were sparks there. And obviously he was not a homosexual. He was a bisexual because they had a torrid love affair and spent great time together. He was, he was older than she was. Of course, people will see in the book that Ron Pataki, when he met Dorothy was 22 years younger, yes. which uh, made you kind of wonder. And I show in there why that's uh, something to think about, especially in the new book. But uh, with Johnny Ray, they just, uh, they looked, they linked up. Well, Dorothy didn't make it a secret. She ran around with, you know, she was a blabbermouth about the JFK assassination, but also she and Johnny Ray hit all the nights, uh, hot nuts, uh, night spots in New York City. And, um, you know, they had a great time and all of that. Well, here was Dorothy Kilgallen running around with a man who was a known homosexual. And at that particular time, of course, uh, that was looked uh, down upon. But nobody, nobody uh, made mention of it. It was just Dorothy Kilgallen and Johnny Ray, and and um, you know nobody seemed to hold it against her in any way that I can find. So it kind of shows the respect that she had that there were those people that you know it didn't concern them whatsoever that Dorothy was uh, running around with another man or doing anything like that. And I think that shows uh, a lot about what people thought of her. And then she told the hairdresser, now this is hearsay probably, right, St. Clair, that, that uh, her last child was, could have been Johnny Ray's? Well, um, you know, here, here's the, you know, some people will look at what, um, you know, what the Sinclair and Simpson and, and Tana Hill and, uh, right. you know, the last woman to see her. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hearsay, but it's, it's what they perceived. Uh, for, the, for the most part, and what Dorothy may have told them. And so, uh, you know, I, I think after 53 years, uh, it's important to evaluate how how truthful that material is. But what I try to do in the book is to try to find confirmation for uh, the material that's presented. And, um, you know, the whole thing about uh, Dorothy Kilgallen and uh, the son, uh, she had three children, of course. She had... Uh, uh, Jill, Dickie, and Carrie. 
and the youngest son, Carrie, there was some question about whether uh, Richard, her husband, was actually Carrie's father. Well, uh, I looked into that, and I was able to find primary sources and all of that for the first book, and even more now for the second book, uh, based on some information that came to me, that actually Carrie was Johnny Ray's son. And um, that was never divulged before. It never came out in 1965. Uh, But it's it's a side of Dorothy that people have to uh, consider. Um, you know, uh, supposedly Johnny Ray never knew, but I, I don't know that that is true. Richard um, must have known. Um, as, as you can see from photographs that are in the book and in at the DorothyKilgallenStory.org, um, Richard had dark hair, Dorothy had dark hair, Carrie has light hair. And uh, there's some features, um, uh, some relatives of, uh, of Dorothy's, uh, who came forward reluctantly uh, have, have told me that they will confirm that uh, Carrie was uh, Johnny Ray's son as well. So that's an aspect of the book that I had to decide whether it was important to the story to uh, include in the book. And I always include both sides. Um, and as far as Ron Pataki goes in the new book, uh, there, there's, uh, you know, there's damaging evidence to him, but I also found some evidence that went the other way, and I like to provide both sides so the reader then uh, can make up their own mind. Well, Ron Pataki says that they they just were friends, that there wasn't anything going on with them. That's what he says in the book, correct? That's what I read. Well, yeah, and, and I lay this out like a prosecutor would, would for a jury. And, um, you know, what that does is that's going to permit people uh, to, uh, to, to go ahead and make up their own mind. That's what I like to do. Yeah, uh, I like to present the, the evidence, the facts, and all of that. And uh, you can, there's a lot more material on Ron Pataki in the new book, Denial of Justice, which I say has, has come out in November. But even in the reporter who knew too much, there's enough there that you can go ahead and make up your own mind whether Ron Pataki is telling the truth about all this. And, um, of course, as we talked about, these two poems are, are just lethal. I mean, they... I can't believe they're just, it. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the people, I uh, like for them to, to evaluate what he says, and uh, then they can make up their own mind as to, uh, you know, uh, Ron Pataki's complicity in Dorothy's death. I also saw a good friend of hers, and I was surprised, was uh, Joan Crawford. Well, that's that's been a little bit of a conjecture. Uh, there have been some people who believe that, uh, yes, that was the case, uh, that they were very good friends. Other people have said that, uh, hey, wait a minute, you know, um, uh, maybe they weren't as close of friends as, as uh, you know, uh, it was led. They were led to believe that there were, you know, some some problems there. Uh, that Joan Crawford was supposed to be there when uh, on the day that Dorothy died in the townhouse, but uh, I've gotten information that she wasn't actually there. It, okay. it, it's difficult, and, and Dorothy has helped me so much, but there, there are some situations where there's, you know, uh, you, you know, I wasn't able to pinpoint exactly what happened, and so I don't try to, to put that in the material. I don't want to, the readers to get the wrong idea. I want to be able to give them solid evidence in terms of what's happening. Well, that's a good thing to do. Well, maybe you'll find find uh, more information about that, and then you'll yes, you'll be better I with can. it. So, yes. I, 
before, I'd like to um, you to talk about the the one thing Dorothy did was fly around the world. She did that. Yeah, when she was just young, you know, uh, Dorothy was trying to do anything she could to go ahead and uh, and uh, you know go ahead and and um, you know prove herself. And uh, early on, I, I can't remember exactly how old she was, but she uh, she went ahead and entered a uh, round the world uh, race. There were two uh, there were two uh, reporters. One was from the New York Times, two men, and Dorothy. And they traveled around the world. It wouldn't seem like a big deal right now, but they traveled around the world on using commercial aircraft. And so she went everywhere. And uh, she then wrote a book about it called Fly Away Baby. And I'm very privileged to have a copy of it. Uh, and I was looking at it uh, before I completed the manuscript for the new book. And I found some more gems in there in terms of Dorothy's uh, recollection of that trip. And uh, she didn't win. She finished second. But she talks about the fact that she could uh, that she could go ahead and uh, compete uh, with the men, uh, and that and and she got a lot of accolades for doing so. That um, you know she she wasn't afraid uh, to uh, try to compete with men. And again, as I say, you know that obstacle never bothered Dorothy whatsoever. I think she got congratulations from uh, Amelia Earhart and uh, Eleanor Roosevelt too when she did that. And that's pretty, two pretty good names, out. wouldn't you say? Yeah. I would say so. She's up there. <laughs> She's definitely up there. <laughs> uh, yes, no question I about it. She so. was so special, and I'm just privileged to be her friend and be her voice. You are. You don't know how much you are her voice, Mark. That's the truth. That's what well, I say. Thank you. you really are. Thank, um, you. thank you. But it's just. It's just incredible the work that she has done and what she's done for others to find them justice. But like you said, now it's your turn to give her justice where it's due. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. Um, Well, thank you. I like to know uh, you wrote all these books, and I'll have to read that new book, and then you know what? You'll have to come back, and we'll have to talk about that as well because I find this fascinating. And you're doing Well, thank you. I'd be happy to uh, come back in the fall when this – uh, be happy to do it. Good. You know, come back this fall when the book is published in November. Yeah, that would be the great. New book, the new I, book Denial I of Justice. It's called Denial of Denial Justice. Denial of Justice. Dorothy Kilgallen. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Kilgallen. Uh, Abuse of Power and the most compelling JFK assassination in history. So I think it will be a good follow-up to this book. And again, I just compliment you so much, Karen, on doing your homework here, and I, I look forward to, to talking to you in the fall. Well, I, before you go, we got your newsletter, and I want you just to talk a little bit about your books and what's coming up. The one's coming up with Dorothy. There's another one coming up in June, though, isn't there? Yes. Uh, Courage in the Face of that? Evil is coming up mm-hmm. in June, and it's a very special story uh, that's set in uh, during the Holocaust days. Um, this is a German Christian woman who was, uh, you know, was... Um, uh, incarcerated, she, she was taken off the street in, in Berlin uh, when she was uh, pa- passing out flyers um, and then thrown in, no trial of course, and she was thrown into Ravensbrück, a concentration camp, which was the main one for women at that time. And uh, we'll call her Vera. This is based on a, a Holocaust diary. It's a very special story. 
uh, inspirational story. And while she was there, she helped uh, other people, uh, gypsies, Jews, uh, everyone who was incarcerated, those women. But at some point, she then um, tries to help a little girl, a little Russian girl who's about to be exterminated. She hides her under floorboards and closets and things like that. But then the woman, Vera, gets in trouble herself and is going to jail. And she doesn't know what to do with the little girl, and so she ends up making a decision that she will trust a Nazi prison guard who has shown her some of and hasn't been as mean as some of the others to the inmates. And, of course, that's quite a gamble because he can either help or uh, have the, the little girl in her, uh, you know, with, before a firing squad. Well, he decides to help, and in the, uh, the diary, uh, it, it's uh, just uh, mesmerizing. It's, it's so uh, amazing what happened, but he decided to help. He and a, and a friend uh, hid the little girl outside the uh, concentration camp uh, for the rest of the war at a pig farm. And uh, the little girl survives, uh, the prison guards survive, and Vera uh, survives. And after the war, Vera and the little girl end up testifying for him and saving his life at a war crimes trial. And so it's a, it's a story about love overcoming hate. And in this day and age when there's so much hate, um, you know, it's, it's an important story, and, and I hope it will permit people to see that, uh, you know, that, that love can overcome hate when human survival especially is at stake. Um, you have to trust people, and you have to uh, decide, um, you know, make important decisions, but you need to do them out of love, and that's, that's what the book is all about. So it's a very special book. It comes out uh, June the 4th, and it can be, it's available at bookstores and Amazon and all of that, and then the new Kilgallen book will come out uh, in November. That's wonderful. And I'd like to ask my, I, I usually ask all my guests this question, and I'm going to ask you, who inspired you or what inspired you to do what you do, Mark? Well, thank you, Karen. Um, this all goes back to my being a, a criminal defense lawyer and a public defender. Uh, I always defended people. I never would have been a prosecutor of any kind, and I, I've never been able to put up with injustice. And all of my books, not all my books, but many, especially the recent ones through the last few years, the common theme is justice or injustice. And, um, you know, I, I just can't stand it when people are wrongly accused or their reputations are tainted or with Dorothy, the truth is just covered up, just buried. And I can't stand that. And so uh, what, what, uh, what uh, drives me on is to continue to try to expose that kind of wrongdoing. Um, you know, Dorothy was all about, excuse me, Dorothy was all about truth and so am I. I want to find the truth about what happened with things. And so uh, that's what keeps me going. And, and I, I, uh, people have said my books are easily read. They've been very kind in their remarks about um, what I do. And um, I'm going to continue to, to fight for Dorothy and others when I find there is injustice uh, uh, that needs to be corrected. That's for sure. Well, you're a special person about that, Mark. Well, thank you. You're very, very special, nice and you, you are definitely a truth seeker. You, uh, I want to thank you. I want to end with this, and I think you'll know what I'm talking about. It's uh, a quote in your book. It's Dorothy's book. It's it's of all the words spoken about Dorothy Kilgallen through the years, those propounded by her What's My Line fellow member, with Bennett Cerf. Mm -hmm. They impacted me the most. He said of his friend, a lot of people knew Dorothy 
as a very tough game player. Others knew her as tough newspaper woman, but we got to know her as a human being and a more lovable, softer, loyal person never lived, and we're going to miss her terribly. Bless you, Dorothy. You are a champion in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I don't know why. I just got a little shiver you're saying that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I look at Dorothy as my spiritual guide or almost like a sister in some ways, I suppose. I mean, I just feel like that, um, uh, you know, that I was able to, to be her voice and to stand up for her. You know, she said justice is a big rug and then you... You uh, you know you uncover that rug and you find a lot of injustice, something like that, and it's the same sort of thing that, that I've tried to do with Dorothy's uh, with Dorothy's story. Uh, she's a remarkable woman in in so many ways, and I've just um, I've just been uh, so honored by the support that I've gotten from people all around the world and people like you, Karen, who have permitted me to to tell her story and then supported my efforts. So. Uh, thank you so much for for letting me uh, me talk about Dorothy, and um, I'm going to continue to do so and continue to fight for. Her. Well, I want you to come back and talk about other things as well, because I find you to be a fascinating person that goes after the truth about things. Well, thank you again, and thank you so much for doing your homework and being so knowledgeable of Dorothy's story. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. Good night, Mark. All right, you too. Bye bye. I would like to thank all the truth seekers around the world for listening tonight. And until we meet again, may you be the light that helps others see.